Well, if you haven't uh, picked up on it, I'm not Garen. Garen is wrapping up vacation in Colorado. He might be climbing a mountain right now for all I know. I had a choice this morning to either um, introduce the book of Romans or to tie a, a ribbon on ending the book of Acts. And I thought, I'm going to let Garen introduce the book of Romans to you. And I want to to finish up the book of Acts. But um, I think if you're reading with us in the New Testament reading, we're up around chapter 6 of the book of Romans, so it might be helpful to you. Garen does have a handout for you that guides you through kind of the, the transition from these narrative portions of Scripture to a letter like Romans. So uh, grab one of those. I think they're on the information table back there. It's helpful to me. Um, I think I answered a question in our uh, triad group this last week incorrectly, and I was looking over here, ah, there's the answer to that question. So that, it might be helpful for you also to, to have that as a resource. In thinking about this transition from narrative portions of Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts are these narratives. And I, when I think of narrative, here's the, the Webster's Dictionary definition of a narrative. Webster's defines it this way a spoken or written account of connected events or a story. Now, I don't know if you have thought of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, that part of Scripture as a story, but that's, that's what it is. It's a story that's been, uh, we've been, if you've been reading along with us, we've been reading for the last six months, and so we've been working through this story, and I want to kind of wrap up a last thought about story, and here's how I want to do that for now. If you are sitting with someone that you know um, in this, your row, if you're with family or somebody that you know, I want you to share with somebody that you're sitting next to one of your favorite stories. Now, it could be something simple like, I don't know, a, a childhood story. Maybe there's a story that you heard growing up that was like, I love this story. Maybe you're like really high-minded and you've got like crime and punishment or, you know, some great war and peace, some great work of literature. It's like, that's my favorite story. Whatever is your favorite story, I want you to share that with the person that you might be sitting next to. And if you have time in two minutes, maybe why. Why your favorite story happens to be your favorite story. So take a couple of minutes and do that for me.
Maybe you've got a story that's like mine that was pretty simple or exciting. Maybe you have a, a story that was your favorite from a, your favorite movie. Uh, the dictionary definition of a story is that it's got this connection, that there's something that connects the events of the story. Now, of course, as we've been reading through God's Word these last uh, six months or so, it's Jesus that connects the story together. Um, I want to show you in the end of the book of Acts, as we kind of wrap up the narrative part of the New Testament, I want to show you four or five ideas that I think are a part of the story. The first thing I want to show you is that this is a reliable story. I'll tell you a little bit about that. The second thing I want to show you is that this is a miracle story, that it's tied to the miracles that God is up to. I also want to show you that it's a big story. And the last thing that I want to show you is that it's a story that we are called to tell, that we're to, to tell this story. If there's one big idea that I want you to remember this morning, I want you to remember that this story of your life, um, the way you interact in the world, the things that are important to you, the story of your life is not your story, it's his story. Uh, and I don't mean um, just that, that the Bible is God's story, or that what we talk about at church is God's story. But I mean, every day of your life, the priorities that you set, how you spend your time, the, the course that you have launched yourself out on is God's story. And here's, uh, you know, I don't know if you knew this. When you woke up this morning, you might be like, I, I'm important in the story of Sunday. Um, tomorrow you'll go to work and you'll be a key character in the story of what you do at work tomorrow. But it's not about you. And that's a, a tricky thing to understand. Uh, and here's, I want to give you an image to help you kind of remember that you are not the main character of your own story. If you, I don't know if anybody, when I ask you, like, what's your favorite story? If any of you are like me, like, born in the 70s and growing up in the 80s, Star Wars was like this story that shaped my life. And I think college students always laugh that I want to insert a Star Wars reference uh, as often as possible. But here's why it fits. Um, some people think that the narrator of the first Star Wars movies is actually R2-D2. The little droid that kind of like rolls around through all of this. How, do, how can he be a narrative? Like he doesn't say anything. He just makes like little beeps and, and, and noises. But uh, I don't know if you have kind of caught this. Um, the droids are like these, these key characters in every single key plot point of the first Star Wars movies. And, and, I, and I don't count the ones where they disappear. That's maybe like the mark of genuine Star Wars movie for me is the droids are the narrators. Now, Here's one of the things that I want you to kind of catch on to this. And I think you can see in this slide. So you've got R2-D2 and C-3PO. They're the narratives of the narrators of the story. But all of the important stuff's not about them. And George Lucas is kind of rumored to have stolen that idea from this picture down below. It's from this classic Japanese movie called The Hidden Fortress. In that movie, these two like bumbling peasants are in almost every part of the movie but they're not important. They just kind of stumble into a civil war and they stumble into this heroic action and they stumble into the romance that's unfolding. They're in all of the, the key plot points of the story, but it's not really about them. I'm gonna make a case that your life is like this, that your life is like R2-D2 or these little peasants that stumble through big things, that you are a key player in your life, but it's not about you. It's about what God desires to do through you or in your life, that God is the key element of your story.
that you are like a little robot or a peasant kind of stumbling through this. It's not about you, it's about him. And I think that's an idea that Paul understood really well. And I think it's something that comes up as we look through the last couple of chapters of Acts, and I'm going to try to show that to you this morning. So let's look in the book of Acts. I want to read uh, three sections, part of it in chapter 7, uh, part of it in chapter 27, and part of 28. I'm going to have a couple of key verses on the screen, but not all of this. You might have a Bible out or have your phone open to Acts chapter 27. I'm going to read verses 22 through 26, and then 33 through 37. And then I'm going to read the last two verses of Acts in chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. So here, starting in chapter 27, verse 22, are the parts that I want to share with you. Here's what Paul says in Acts 28, 22. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. And then uh, look down in verse uh, 33. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense, and you've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. After this, he took some bread, and he gave thanks to God in front of them all, and he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Now look over at the very end of the book of Acts in chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who came to to see him, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. First thing that I want you to catch in this passage, in these three passages, that this is a reliable story. Each time I read this, um, this shipwreck account in the book of Acts, I'm struck by the narrative details, the this, this stuff that's in between the, the little details, the, the details about people, the details about um, the, the ship and their destination. I'm struck by those details, and I think it speaks to the idea that this is a reliable narrative. I want to share a little bit about the, what we see and why it's a, a reliable and why there's so much detail. In the book of Acts, there are five we sections where Luke, as the author, Um, He includes himself in the first person and says, we went here and we went there. Um, Through a lot of the book of Acts, Luke is writing as a reporter. He's interviewing Peter or he's interviewing Paul. And he'll write into the book of Acts, Paul did this or Peter did that. But there's five sections where Luke writes it in, we went here and we did this. So he is indicating to us in these five sections that he's an eyewitness standing next to Paul as he experiences the, uh, the account here. So this is the last of those five we sections. And Luke, as he writes it, gives the names of, of even the minor characters in the story. Sometimes as you're reading, you even wonder, like, who cares that this guy's name is Festus? Or who cares that this woman's name is, is Bernice? But Luke includes um, even the specifics of, of names of minor characters. And then he includes the very specific, very accurate, vivid details of their near destruction at sea. 
he includes some things that, that would have been almost completely unknowable unless Luke had been on the journey with Paul, carefully recording everything that happened. One of the really interesting ideas about this, there's a, a scholar on the book of Acts named Craig Keener, and he makes this interesting note from Acts 25. In Acts 25, Luke records the presence of King Agrippa and a woman named Bernice. Now, Bernice maybe is unknown to you, but if you lived in the first century, Bernice was a, a big deal. If Bernice was alive today, she would be like the, the subject of all the paparazzi. She would be all over social media. Um, Bernice was a, a woman who had multiple marriages to world leaders in the ancient Near East. And so she has known to have married a couple of princes before she shows up here with Agrippa. After this, she eventually has an affair with the emperor of the Roman world, Titus, and it's a scandalous thing. She's involved in all of this stuff. And what this means is there's a lot of written record of who Bernice was outside of the Bible. So Bernice shows up in all of this written record. She's all over the place in, in the writing of the day. And so when Luke says that Bernice is there at Caesarea at this particular time of the year, that's something that you can check against other written records. And no big surprise for us as believers is that Luke gets it exactly right, that Bernice shows up in the right spot at the right time to interact with, with Paul as he shares before King Agrippa. It's little details like that that help us to understand that this is a reliable narrative. It's a reliable story. Another part of the, the reliability of the book of Acts are these nautical details. The ship that Luke describes is exactly the kind of ship that they've found, you know, wrecked at the bottom of the sea. It's like a, a barge. It's like if, if you're, for us, if you're out on the highway and you see a, a semi carrying grain, you know, from the field out to, to go to the, the co-op, this is what's happening in the, the first century. Egypt was like the bread basket of the Roman Empire. The, the high-level, high-ranking Roman authorities, and then all of the slaves who were in the city of Rome that kept Rome functioning, the way they kept the peace is everybody ate. And so all the grain is being grown in Egypt, shipped across the Mediterranean on these barges. And they're exactly like Paul, or like Luke describes in his interaction with Paul. This was before rudders were invented. So they had these paddles in the back of the ship, and so when you read about these paddles and the ropes that they put around the ship to keep it from falling apart, it's just like you would imagine. Um, it's just like they have discovered the particular ships and the nature of, of shipping that grain up to Rome to provide food for everyone. So this shipwreck fits with what we know from history. We know that Luke's reference to the Day of Atonement in Acts 27.9 puts this, uh, this travel in middle of October. Everyone knows, if you know about the Mediterranean, even today, that this time during, uh, during the fall and into the winter is the wrong time to be traveling. So Luke kind of puts their trip right in the, the worst time of year to be traveling across the Mediterranean. It's a dangerous period for travel. Here's an interesting note to add and kind of wrap this up. You can go to the island of Malta today, where their ship ends up crashing, and you can go to the tourist traps on Malta, and they will tell you that this image, I think I have up here on my PowerPoint, that this is, an, this is the part of the anchor from the ship that Paul was on. That's what they'll tell you. And, and all that really means is the floor of the Mediterranean, uh, the Mediterranean Sea right around Malta, is littered with just this kind of anchor. That, where that kind of rectangle part, there would have been a, 
a part that came out of there. They'd throw these anchors. And so when Paul describes this grain ship throwing four anchors overboard and cutting them off, and then they, they run aground on Malta, the, the sea, the, the sea floor all around Malta is littered with these anchors. For centuries, just these types of ships have carried just these types of anchors, just like you read in Acts, in, in Luke's account of the, the book of Acts. The, the narrative details of the, the nautical trip are just like you would expect them to be. Now, why do I tell you all about the reliability of the details, the place names, the individual names, the, the nautical details? The historical details in the New Testament are reliable, but they won't take away all of human doubt. If you're like me, I think um, there's nothing that can completely remove the times, the seasons where we can doubt if this story of the gospel is too good to be true. There are going to be times where we wonder, did this really happen the way it's described here? Or is this kind of a myth or a fairy story or something that, that I've heard growing up? And I just want you to know, I don't think that knowing the nautical details or knowing the details of who these people are, are going to take away those doubts completely. It's natural for those to creep up. It's natural to wonder from time to time if Jesus is too good to be true. But I do believe that it's helpful to remember that when doubt creeps up, that the most plausible explanation for how this story unfolds is that it actually happened this way to these people. There are other explanations for why we have the text that we do. There are other explanations for, for how this could have happened. But the most plausible, the most logical, the, the argument that would hold up in a court of law is that this happened to these people. There's no other answer for the resurrection, the spread of the gospel, the growth of the church that makes as much sense as this audacious claim that this is what Jesus actually did and these were the people who followed him. This story is a reliable story. Next thing I want you to see in the text is that this is a miracle story. If you've been reading along through the gospels and the book of Acts with us, you've seen miracles on almost every page. Jesus will do something that doesn't have an explanation. It's miraculous. Paul will do something that is miraculous. There are miracles on almost every page of this story. And what I, I want you to see this morning, as you look through this text, Paul tells these traveling companions that an angel of the Lord has appeared to him and that the entire group will be spared by the miraculous power of God. Now, if Paul was talking to a group like you guys this morning in a church setting, and, and if we say, well, I heard from an angel of God that, that God would protect us and take care of us, you might do something like, well, that sounds good to me. Like that, that sounds like the kind of thing we talk about in church. Paul's not talking to a group of church people, is he? He's talking to a group of soldiers and sailors. These are notoriously rough individuals. You don't think you get down to earth any more than soldiers and sailors. So Paul appears to these soldiers and sailors, and he says, I follow a God who sent an angel, and the angel told me that we're all going to be okay, that we're all going to survive, and, and not a hair on the, the heads of the people on this trip are going to be harmed. Now, they've already decided once before this, they're going to get into the life, the life raft, they're going to cut it loose, they're going to abandon the cargo, they're going to abandon everyone on board, let them all die, we're going to survive because it's that dire but Paul says, no, here's what's going to happen. An angel told me that it's going to be okay. 
Paul says that he's going to guide them to safety when all help, all hope seems lost. It's because it's a miracle. Um, after Paul and his group make it to Malta, Paul is miraculously saved from the, the bite of this poisonous snake. And then Paul goes around the island and he heals the sickness of, of many different people on the island. Paul is like sharing one miracle after another miracle after another miracle. For the follower of Jesus, the end of Acts is like all of the New Testament. It's grounded in historical fact and it's a reliable story, but it's punctuated by the miraculous. I think that's how all of the New Testament unfolds and it leads us to a place where we have to kind of reckon with this. Jason said, scholars say, that this is a reliable historical narrative, but what do I do with the miracles? Dane Cook and I were talking about this a couple of days ago how it unfolds in the book of Acts. In Acts, a couple chapters earlier in Acts 26, here's what Paul says. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first one to rise from the dead, that he would bring the message of light to his own people and then to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul. He shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. The idea that God would come and live among us, would be crucified, would conquer death and live again, sounds to the world like insanity because it's a miracle. It's not supposed to, to make complete sense to us. But for every follower of Jesus who, like Paul, has turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the forgiveness of sins, has received the greatest miracle. Your life, your salvation, my salvation is the greatest possible miracle. We live normal lives punctuated by the miraculous. Our task as believers is to hold in tension the fact that this is a reliable story, but it's also a miracle story. And part of what that means is that your life, at any point God could decide to, to show up in a miraculous way, and so we hold these, these ideas in, in tension. It's a reliable story. It's a miracle story. But I also want you to see that it's a big story. When Paul declares in Acts 27, 24, that I must appear before Caesar, I wonder, as he says that, if anyone kind of laughs a little bit at that. Now, we don't think very much about it, that Paul would, would set a course for Rome, that he would head to speak before Caesar that is kind of natural for us, but it doesn't make sense in the context where Paul says it. At this point, when Paul is speaking, Paul might have best have been known as this is an ex-Jewish leader who has a, a habit of getting himself thrown in jail. Those are the things that Paul's known for. He's not like a, an author of the Bible. He's just a religious guy who goes to jail a lot. That's how Paul is known at this point, okay? So Paul, this guy who goes to jail a lot and he's on the outs with the Jews and he's on the outs with people in the Roman Empire, contrast that with what you could know about the Roman Empire at this point. In the first century, this is like the golden age of the Roman Empire. It was grand. In the first century, the Emperor Nero would have ruled from England to Africa and from Syria to Spain, this entire huge ge geographic area. In the population of, of Rome at that time, in that part of the world, one in four people in all of the world 
lived under Roman rule. So today, if we were going to kind of come up with a, uh, a comparison, it's almost as if if you took the population of the United States and added to it the entire population of a, a huge nation like China or India, the equivalent of one in four people being under Roman rule today would be the equivalent of two billion people. So imagine a nation with two billion people that ruled a huge swath of territory. That's the kind of, of empire where Paul declares, I'm going to stand before the leader of this great empire. We might be so used to reading our Bibles that we're unfamiliar with that kind of history. And we might overlook just how insignificant Paul was and how significant Caesar was. His efforts to spread the gospel to all of the world, um, it, it doesn't quite make sense. It would be as if I declared to you, you know, I must appear before President Biden and the United Nations and Vladimir Putin, the leader of Russia, and Xi Jinping, the leader of China. We're all going to get together, for me, a, a little preacher in Kansas, I'm going to get together with these leaders of the world and I'm going to proclaim the gospel to them. You might say, Jason, all of your reading is driving you insane, right? That's the world, that's the the declaration that Paul is making. He is living a big, big story. He's a small person in the big story of, of what God's trying to accomplish. Now, all of that being said, over the course of the centuries, the the spread of Christianity from the time of the end of Acts until a few centuries later, there's this role reversal. The significance of Paul and the Roman emperors have flip-flopped. There's a a Bible scholar, J. Vernon McGee, who describes this idea with a great phrase. Nero was on the throne while Paul was being beheaded, but history has already handed down his decision. Men name their sons Paul and call their dogs Nero. Paul goes from being a backwoods preacher to becoming a leader of a movement that literally changes the world. And we remember Nero as like a a footnote in the history books, a a terrible leader that everyone is glad to forget about. Here's why I want to highlight that detail from the book of Acts, these last few chapters. This is a big story authored by the same God who's writing your story. God's not any different today than he was in writing this big story in the life of Paul. If you choose to live a small life of personal comfort and safety, so be it. But it shouldn't ever come as a surprise to followers of Jesus that living completely devoted to the Lord would end up changing the course of human history. Looking at Paul's life and at the rest of Scripture, there's no guarantee that life will be easy, but there is, I think, an opposite guarantee that if we live for Jesus, the more significant our lives are going to be. This is a big story. The last thing that I want you to see about story in the end of Acts is that this is his story. The last detail that I want to highlight is what Paul does again and again. At key moments from the story of Acts, Paul glorifies God. He makes it clear that this is God's story. In chapters 27, verse 25, when that storm is getting intense, Paul declares to all of these other passengers, I have faith in God, and it will happen just as he told me. And then in the middle of the night, the storm has been raging at this point for two weeks, They're headed towards land, but they can't see it. They know it's approaching. 
land is coming upon them in the night, and they uh, Paul declares like this prayer, almost like a last meal that they have together. He says this, I urge you take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all, and he broke it and they began to eat. It's almost like a, a last supper kind of image that Paul says before all of these passengers and soldiers and sailors, God will protect us. Let's give thanks to God for this food and, and share one last meal together. And then Paul does this kind of crazy thing in chapter 28. Paul is in chains under house arrest, and he turns his prison into a kind of Bible study center. If you were to ask Paul, like, Paul, how should we establish like the world's first seminary? The answer wouldn't make sense for it to be, well, I know, under Roman house arrest with a guard chained to my, my right side. That's how we'll start this off. But that's how it unfolds. And in that setting, it says he proclaimed the kingdom of God and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. How could it be that without hindrance and chained to a guard, like go hand in hand, but that's how it unfolds. He has faith in God, he gives thanks to God, and he proclaims the kingdom of God. Paul was an amazing, real person. I think if you, you know, we'll read about all these letters that he's going to write as we keep reading in the New Testament, and you might get this idea as you read about Paul that, that he's kind of mythological or he's larger than life, but he was this amazing, real person. But some of the things about him are amazing. He had the highest academic training. He describes himself as sitting at the feet of the, the highest rabbi in the land, Gamaliel. And he, he sits before him and he has this great intellectual learning. We've read in Acts how he could move seamlessly from one language to the next, from one culture to the next. Our riot is about to, to unfold and he says, you know, let me speak to you in Greek and tell you about my Roman citizenship. And then he's before a synagogue and he speaks in, in fluent Arabic or uh, Aramaic and Hebrew. He can move between languages and cultures with ease. And then you get this image that he's tough as nails. There's a scholar who said that in all of his travels, he might have traveled over 3,000 miles on, on ships and, and on foot. And he gets beaten down and, and, and tortured, almost stoned to death. He's in a coma. And then he pops up and says, well, I'm, I'm good to go. Let's keep preaching the gospel. He's like this egg-headed nerd and uh, like a heroic, uh, tough-as-nails kind of guy. In all of st uh, his stories, in all of his accounts, what Paul never highlights in his own story is himself. He never highlights his role as being significant, but instead it's always about the Lord. He never gets caught up proclaiming his own greatness, but it's always about the Savior's story. Paul models the most basic teaching of Jesus again and again and again. Love God with all of your heart, all of your soul. Love God completely. And then love the people around you the way you would want to be loved. The story of Paul's life is his love for the Savior. That's the story that he proclaims is God's story. He proclaims it, and we take the message, the lesson from him, and we can proclaim the message of the gospel to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, and even to people far away. This morning, I want you to remember these things. When you doubt, because you will have times of doubt, the clear evidence points to the idea that these events really happened. 
When life seems too predictable, remember that your salvation is a miracle and that God is a miracle-working God and that if he ever desires that it would bring about his purposes, he will continue to work miracles in our lives. When your life seems small, remember that God uses faithful people to change the details, the, the course of history all around the world. And when you think that this life is all about you, remember that he gives you this life, not for your glory, but for his. Here's what Paul said in Romans. I think this is for our readings next week. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are dead to the old story and you are raised to live a new story in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that you have saw fit to demonstrate the message of your son, the message of the gospel, of our restoration, our freedom from sin, that you've taken that message and you have proclaimed it through messengers like Paul 2,000 years ago in the Mediterranean. God, thank you that you have decided in your care and your love for us to take that message from that part of the world and that point in time all around the world, even to where we can hear it and respond to it. Father, I pray that you would put the burden on our hearts to become the same types of messengers as Paul, people who are not living for our own story, but that we would live to share your story, to make your story the greatest story, that we couldn't stop ourselves from speaking about who you are with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, and even to the ends of the earth. Amen. If you have questions about some of these ideas or if you would like to know more about how to follow Jesus yourself, if that's new for you, love to talk to you a little bit more about that this morning. Thank you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday.